everyone. We are back in our study of church history. As always, we're going to open up our time with a reading from Scripture. So if you'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And we'll begin reading at verse 11. Romans chapter 13. Verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Amen. And uh, for our opening prayer, we are beginning this afternoon to look at the life and influence of Augustine of Hippo. And we'll talk more about who he was in a minute. But I figured it would be proper to start off uh, where Augustine starts off in his confessions. And if you've ever read Augustine's confessions, you know it's, uh, it reads like a sustained prayer to God from beginning to end. And so we'll open up here with Augustine's, uh, Augustine's prayer to God that he offers at the beginning of his confessions. Um, Towards the end of this section, he does uh, make mention of a particular preacher that was influential in his life. Um, he doesn't say uh, explicitly who he's talking about, but uh, most commentators are convinced that he's talking about Ambrose of Milan. Uh, we covered Ambrose uh, a while back. Um, so, uh, of course, all of us came to Saving Faith through the influence of a preacher, uh, whether that was uh, a minister uh, in the church or uh, even a family member or a friend that first came to us and shared with us uh, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when Augustine, at the end here, uh, offers up a, a prayer of thanks for the preacher that influenced him, uh, you can kind of have in your own mind um, that particular preacher or preachers in your life that influenced you in bringing you to faith in Jesus Christ. But with that said, let's, let's open up with prayer. Can any praise be worthy of the Lord's majesty? How magnificent his strength, how inscrutable his wisdom. Man is one of your creatures, Lord, and his instinct is to praise you. He bears about him the mark of death, the sign of his own sin, to remind him that you thwart the proud. But still, since he is a part of your creation, he wishes to praise you. The thought of you stirs him so deeply that he cannot be content unless he praises you. Because you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Grant me, Lord, to know and understand whether a man is first to pray to you for help or to praise you, and whether he must know you before he can call you to his aid. 
If he does not know you, how can he pray to you? For he may call for some other help, mistaking it for yours. Or are men to pray to you and learn to know you through their prayers? Only how are they to call upon the Lord until they have learned to believe in him? And how are they to believe in him without a preacher to listen to? Those who look for the Lord will cry out in praise of him, because all who look for him shall find him. And when they find him, they will praise him. I shall look for you, Lord, by praying to you. And as I pray, I shall believe in you, because we have had preachers to tell us about you. It is my faith that calls to you, Lord. The faith which you gave me and made to live in me through the merits of your Son, who became man, and through the ministry of your preacher. Amen. All right. Well, this afternoon we begin our survey of Augustine of Hippo. St. Augustine is, by many accounts, the most influential theologian in the history of the church, especially in the West. He represents for us the flowering of patristic theology, and we can see him as a bridge from the ancient church to the medieval church. There was a phrase used by medieval scholars who would make their case, arguing fine theological points, summing up, If Augustine agrees, it is sufficient. B.B. Warfield, the great Presbyterian theologian of old Princeton, characterizes the Reformation as nothing but the conflict that emerged from the outworking of Augustine's doctrine of the church over against his doctrine of grace. Augustine, tremendously influential in the history of the church. And so for this reason... I hope that you will bear with me as we take our time looking at Augustine and the major controversies that he was involved with. Next month, Lord willing, we'll consider the Donatist controversy in which Augustine hammers out his doctrine of the church, as well as the Pelagian controversy where Augustine developed his doctrine of grace. I'm still kind of wrestling if I I want to try and tackle those both in one setting, Um, You could rightly deal with them separately, but then you might run the risk of getting too much into the weeds and lose the whole point. So we we might try and consider those two things together. And then we're going to conclude with a look at Augustine's magnum opus, his City of God. And Brother uh, Brandon Renfro has uh, graciously offered to uh, lead us in a study uh, of that monumental work. And the City of God has had a profound impact on the development of Western society, both civil and sacred. But today, we consider not only one of Augustine's best-known writings, but a work of literature that rightly has its place in the canon of Western literature. It's read and studies, uh, studied in un- secular universities. You can go down to Barnes & Noble this afternoon and find a copy of Augustine's Confessions, still there, still on the shelf, still in print, and maybe even multiple editions. The Confessions, at least part of it, is something of a spiritual autobiography where Augustine tells us about the story of God's grace 
and how it led him out of error into that truth that is found only in Jesus Christ. The book is divided up into 13 13 books. If he were writing today, he probably would have called them chapters. Uh, But 13 books. And Augustine summarizes the confessions in this way. The 13 books of my confessions praise the just and good God, both in the good things and in the bad things. And they awaken the human intellect and heart to him. However, what is of consequence to me is that they stirred this up in me when they were written. And they are stirring it now when they are read. What others may feel about them, they themselves have seen. But I know that they have given much pleasure to many of the brethren and are giving pleasure to them. From the first to the tenth book, they were written concerning myself. In the other three, concerning the sacred scriptures, from what was written in the beginning, God made the heaven and the earth right up to the rest of the Sabbath. So we're going to, really the first nine books where Augustine opens up his his own uh, autobiography, that's what we're going to be dealing with, not so much the last three. You should read the last three, but um, I I get lost when I (laughs) try and read it. It's pretty heady stuff, but... We'll stick with the autobiography. So Augustine was born in the year 354 in the city of Tagaste in North Africa. One of three children, his father was named Patricius. It's a Latin version of the name Patrick. A small landowner and a pagan when Augustine was born. Uh, Patricius would be baptized uh, not long before his death. Augustine treats him as a footnote in the Confessions. Uh, He says of his father, he gave next to no thought to God and only shallow thought to me. He was an adulterer, and his only praise is that he didn't beat his wife like the rest of the men of Tagaste tended to do. He dies when Augustine is 18, and the only reason we know is because Augustine mentions in Book 3, really in passing, My father had died two years before. Well, in stark contrast to Patricius is Augustine's mother, Monica. Now, I was uh, uh, blessed last Mother's Day to be able to tell you the story of Origen's mother who hid his clothes from him so that he couldn't go out uh, rushing into the streets to pursue martyrdom. Um, This Mother's Day, I get to tell you about another blessed mother in church history, this mother, Monica. Monica was a devoted Christian, an obedient wife, and a loving mother. She raised her son in the Christian faith. She isn't perfect, and Augustine doesn't want you to think she is, but her presence is felt throughout the narrative. And in many ways, she is one of the main protagonists of the story. Well, Augustine talks about growing up and his modest education in the city of Tagaste, how he loved the Latin classics, he despised the Greek, but that above all, he loved to play. And he would often neglect his studies to play, and for his trouble, he fell victim to his teacher's cane. He said, we enjoyed playing games and were punished by them, or for them by men who played games themselves. However, grown-up games, Augustine says, is known as business. And so it was during this time that Augustine recalls his first religious stirrings. 
He says, I was still a boy when I first began to pray to you, my help and refuge. I used to prattle away to you, and though I was small, my devotion was great. When I begged you not to let me be beaten at school. He had a semblance of belief in God. But, he confesses, I did not love you. My sin was this, that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in him, but in myself and his creatures. And the search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. Augustine was in a rat race to gain the respect of others and win for myself what passes for wealth in this world. And this game he would play for 33 years. Augustine recalls his rowdy teen years. He makes special note of his 16th year. This was the age at which the frenzy gripped me, and I surrendered myself entirely to lust. And despite his mother's constant warnings against fornication and adultery, Augustine writes, I cared for nothing but to love and be loved. Bodily desire like a morass and adolescent sex welling up within me exuded mist which clouded and obscured my heart so that I could not distinguish the clear light of true love from the murk of lust. He confesses to God, more and more I angered you unawares. How long it was before I learned that you were my true joy. Augustine went off to study law at Carthage, a a true uh, college city, a party town, where he writes, I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. Being further away from the influence of his mother slackened what little moral reserve he had. I defied you, he says to God, even so far as to relish the thought of lust and gratify it too within the walls of your church during the celebration of your mysteries. In other words, apparently he's going to church just to pick up women. Well, despite his prodigal living, he made time for his studies and was at top of the school of rhetoric. I was pleased with my superior status and swollen with pride. Well, it was in his studies that he first encountered the Roman statesman Cicero and his book, The Hortensius, which awakened within Augustine a love for philosophy. He says, it altered my outlook on life. My heart began to throb with a bewildering passion for the wisdom of eternal truth. Well, unfortunately, this eternal truth he didn't find in the Bible or in the church. But instead, Augustine fell in with a sect whose philosophy he found truly satisfying, that being the Manichees. Um, Augustine, with hindsight, describes them as a set of... uh, Hold on a second. (laughs) Sensualist. There we go. I knew I was going to have trouble with that word. (laughs) Sensualist, men with glib tongues who ranted and raved and had the snares of the devil in their mouths. Now, I debated whether or not I should do this, but... We have such a small crowd here. I, I could probably get away with it. Um, how many of us have heard of Manichaeanism? A couple of us, right? So, okay. 
Um, for the rest of you, buckle up, because it's wild. <laughs> so, what was it that the Manichaeans believed? They, they held a view that in the ages past, there was a great war in heaven between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. Unfortunately, the forces of darkness won. God was defeated in this struggle, and so God gets captured and gets sent down to earth, broken up into little bits, little pieces of God trapped in material form here on the earth. So for the Manichaeans, salvation wasn't so much about how, how one was saved from the wrath of God, but rather how we can work in order to save God. That was part of the Manichaean system. Now, <clears throat> it, it, it gets worse. <laughs> um, so you would figure that these God particles trapped on the earth, that they would be trapped in the most beautiful, the most elegant pieces of matter upon the earth. And I know what you're all thinking. Obviously, that's cucumbers. So God is trapped in cucumbers. How do you get God out of the cucumber? Obviously, you have to eat the cucumber. Now, this is a serious religion, okay? So not just anyone can eat cucumbers and redeem God. This work requires serious holy bowels. So within Manichaeanism, you had a strict caste system of the elect... And the hearers, Augustine never attained to the status of the elect. He was always a hearer. And the hearers, one of their jobs was to bring the cucumber to the elect. The elect would teach the hearers, and then they would go through this process of redeeming God by eating the cucumber. So how would this work? Well, you eat the cucumber, you digest the cucumber, and as the, the elect past wind, these God particles would ascend into the ether in what they called the cloud of glory. Now, you can do with this, with this information whatever you want. In the Johnson household, we use that phrase, cloud of glory, quite often. But, um, yeah, so, so obviously, that, that's, that's Manichaeanism. Yeah, the, the, laughter, the laughter should begin. <laughs> Obviously, as far as, uh, as far as religion goes, that's absurd. I mean, I, I would even go so far as to use the term stupid. Like, it, it is incredibly stupid. Augustine is not. He's not a stupid man. So, so what is it that draws Augustine into this system, this bizarre system known as Manichaeanism. He says, I believed the tales which these men told. What was it? There are three reasons why Augustine is drawn to Manichaeanism. The first one is the problem of evil. Um, most of you are probably familiar with the question of the problem of evil. Um, if... Uh, if God is good and God is loving, how is it that there, or if God is all-powerful and God is loving, uh, how can there be evil in the world, right? If God was powerful enough 
he would eradicate all the evil. But since evil isn't eradicated, well, that must mean he's not all-loving. Or let's say God is all-loving, and he hates evil. He wants to put an end to evil, but he chooses not to. Or rather, he can't because he's not all-powerful. You see, you see the, the, the conundrum. Um, now, as Reformed Christians, I think we have a pretty good answer to that, that question. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Uh, God ordains evil um, according to his gracious will uh, in order to accomplish a good, loving purpose. Um, so as Reformed Christians, we don't really have too much of a problem with evil. But for Augustine, this was a major hurdle. Um, another problem was uh, the problem of transcendence. Um, Augustine had a hard time conceiving of God as anything but a material creature. Um, the idea that God is spirit, that God is omniscient. These were things that Augustine couldn't comprehend. And the Manichaeans very much held, held to a theology that was materialistic. Right? God, God could be broken up into bits and sent throughout the earth into cucumbers. Uh, that made sense to him. Also, when it, came to the, when it comes to the problem of evil... Um, that the idea that uh, God is helpless. He, he wants to do something about the evil, but he's trapped. He can't do anything about it. That made sense to him, more so than the, than the Christian system. Uh, the third thing that drew Augustine to, this, to this, uh, this system of thought was his problem with the scriptures. He, he had read the scriptures, he had read the Bible, and he was thoroughly unimpressed with them. Um, he, he took to the scriptures a wooden literalism. So, for instance, a good, a good example is um, Genesis chapter 1, right? God made man and, and women after his own image. Well, logically, for Augustine, that means God has a body. God is like this ultra-large human being out there somewhere in space. And he thought that that was absurd. And so, uh, he, he doesn't... Uh, Pastor Kyle opened up this morning uh, the concept of type and antitype. Augustine just doesn't have categories in order to, to be reading the scriptures in that light. And so uh, for these reasons, um, he gives himself over to Manichaeanism. And now I can stop rambling and get back to my notes. <laughs> um, Manichaeanism had first been preached by the Persian prophet Manny in the 3rd century. And what Manny did is he combined elements of Christianity, especially of the Gnostic variety, with Zoroastrianism and Buddhism to create a new mesh of religions, a religion for the whole world. Uh, Augustine says, during the space of those nine years, from the 19th to the 29th year, or 28th year of my life, I was led astray myself and led others astray in my turn. Well, you can imagine how grieved his mother Monica must have been to hear that her son had rejected the true faith for heresy. In fact, for a season after Augustine had moved back to Tagaste, she wouldn't even let him in the house. But her heart eventually warmed especially after she had received what she considered to be signs from God that Augustine would not remain a Manichae forever. 
She told Augustine about a dream that she had where an angel appeared to her and assured her that where she was, her son would be also. At another time, Monica approached a bishop in Tagaste, urging him to speak with Augustine. He himself had been a, a, a former Manichae, and he says to Monica, the boy's too mature now, but let him alone to his studies. Eventually, he'll come to the truth of their folly. That is, after all, what had happened to him. Yet Monica persisted in tears and wails, so that eventually the bishop gets annoyed and says, Leave me and go in peace. It cannot be that the son of these tears should be lost. Well, Monica took that as a genuine prophecy that God would answer her prayer. Well, while in Carthage, Augustine says, I lived with a woman, not my lawful wedded wife, but a mistress whom I had chosen for no special reason, but that my restless passions had lighted on her. And she was the only one, and I was faithful to her. This mistress, he never names, but together they will have a son whom they will call Adeodatus, the gift of God. Well, Augustine wraps up his studies and begins his career as a teacher of the art of public speaking, first in his hometown of Tagaste, but in the course of time, Augustine once again leaves his hometown for Carthage, his mistress, his son, and his widowed mother with him. Well, in book five, Augustine talks about his 29th year. Uh, though he traveled in Manichae circles, he began to have some doubts. He found that Manny and his writings often contradicted what had become settled science in his day. Manny made observations about nature and astronomy that didn't, just, that didn't uh, hold up to careful scrutiny. I had read a great many scientific books which were still alive in my memory. When I compared them with the tedious tales of the Manichees, it seemed to me that of the two, the theories of the scientists were the more likely to be true. Augustine agonized over these conundrums until at last Faustus, one of the leading bishops of the Manichees, recognized for his charm and his intellect, Faustus arrived in Carthage. Augustine says that for almost the whole of nine years, Augustine waited for Faustus, convinced that when he came, he would be able to answer his questions. But, as charming and as eloquent as he was, Augustine was thoroughly unimpressed. As soon as it became clear to me that Faustus was quite uninformed about the subjects in which I had expected him to be an expert, I began to lose hope that he could lift the veil and resolve the problems which perplexed me. In fact, when Faustus learned that Augustine was a teacher, Faustus asked Augustine if he could tutor him. The keen interest which I had in the Manichaean doctrines was checked by this experience, and my confidence in the other teachers of the sect was further diminished. This is also the year, his 29th year, when Augustine left his beloved Africa in search of fame and fortune 
in the immortal city of Rome. One of the things that drew him to Rome was the reputation of the students in the city of Rome. The students in the city of Carthage were, in the words of Augustine, maniacs. They would run around different classrooms, disturbing classes as they were going on, doing things that Augustine says they should have been arrested for. The students of Rome, on the other hand, were much more disciplined. And so off he goes to the city of Rome. Um, His widowed mother had come to live with him in Carthage and was intent on sailing to Rome with him, but Augustine tricked her. He says, It was all I could do to persuade her to stay that night, the night he was to set sail, in a shrine dedicated to St. Cyprian not far from the ship, promising that he would come to her in the morning uh, before they sailed. But during the night, secretly, I sailed away, leaving her alone to her tears and her prayers. Poor Monica is left on the shore of Carthage as Augustine sails away. Well, Augustine's stay in Rome was short. Um, He came to find out that the grass is not always greener on the other side, so to speak. Uh, The students in Rome were much more disciplined, uh, but they were not uh, any less wicked. Um, The thing that the Roman students liked to do was they would go through a course of study, uh, sit through weeks or months or what have you of uh, lectures, And then when the day of the final came, the day when you would pay your instructor, they wouldn't show up. And so Augustine would be working for free for most of the time, um, and that irked him to no end. So when a job posted in Milan, working as a teacher of literature and elocution for the city, with a promise that traveling expenses would be charged to public funds, Augustine says, I applied for the appointment. And so off Augustine goes to Milan. But a job wasn't the only thing that he found there. He says, in Milan, I found your devoted servant, the Bishop Ambrose, who was known throughout the world as a man whom there were few to equal in goodness. Unknown to me, it was you who led me to him so that I might knowingly be led by him to you. He started attending church in Milan, not to hear something good, but to hear something well said. Uh, As a teacher of rhetoric, Augustine never tired of hearing a good speech, and Ambrose was known for giving good speeches. So uh, Augustine is there in attendance uh, in the church uh, in Milan, but bit by bit... Augustine felt his heart warm first to Ambrose and then to the truth that Ambrose taught. His meaning, which I tried to ignore. He loved the words, but not the meaning. I tried to ignore. It found its way into my mind together with his words, which I admired so much. It became became clear to him that Christianity wasn't just an absurd mass of fairy tales as he discovered Manichaeanism was, but that a rational defense could be made for its claims. The Bible wasn't reduced to mere literalism, but that God, accommodating himself to our weakness, to our ignorance, conveyed awesome spiritual truth 
using earthly forms and figures. Ambrose often reminded his hearers, the written law inflicts death, whereas the spiritual law brings life, as though this were a rule upon which he wished to insist most carefully. Augustine says, I made up my mind, at least, to leave the Manichees, and I decided to remain a catechumen in the Catholic Church. So, if you'll remember, a catechumen, this is a person who has uh, not formally submitted themselves to the discipline of the church, but that they're attending the church, they're listening, they're being taught, and this in preparation for baptism. And a person can be a catechumen for quite a long time before they finally made that decision to be baptized. Um, So, Augustine is now a catechumen in the church. Well, Ambrose wasn't the only thing that Augustine found in Milan. Monica also shows up. When she heard that her son had once again become a catechumen, she was unimpressed. She was convinced that God had promised her that she would see him a baptized Christian before her death. Well, Monica knew her son And she saw that one of the hindrances that kept him from totally embracing the faith was his bondage to lust. She believed that marriage was the only proper remedy to rein in Augustine's sin. And Augustine, for his part, had a mistress of nine years with whom he had a son and to whom he had been faithful. But she was of a lower class and uh, in, those, in those days, uh, marriage between the two was strictly prohibited. Um, it wasn't going to happen. So Monica worked out a contract, a, mar- uh, a marriage with another middle-class family, and Augustine saw the handwriting on the wall. He agreed to the, to the marriage, but he would have to wait for two years for his bride-to-be to come of age. Augustine, at this point in the Confessions, lays his heart bare. He says, The woman with whom I had been living was torn from my side as an obstacle to my marriage, and this was a blow which crushed my heart to bleeding because I loved her dearly. She went back to Africa, vowing never to give herself to any other man, and left with me the son whom she had borne me. He says, at first the pain was sharp and searing, but then the wound began to fester. And though the pain was duller, there was the less, all the less hope of a cure. Well, Augustine did the only thing he thought that he could. He took another mistress in order to try and fill in this void. Well, by this time, all of Augustine's intellectual hang-ups have been addressed He is convinced, uh, as a catechumen, that in Christ and Christ alone is the truth that he has been desperately seeking, yet still he lingers outside the kingdom of God. I did not persist in enjoyment of my God. Your beauty drew me to you, but soon I was dragged away from you by my own weight, and in dismay I plunged again into the things of this world. The weight I carried was the habit of the flesh. He had it all figured out. But in my worldly life, 
All was confusion. He writes, I was still held firm in the bonds of woman's love. I had already found the pearl of great value, and I ought to have sold all that I had and bought it, but I still held back. O Lord, my helper and my redeemer, I shall now tell and confess to the glory of your name how you released me from the fetters of lust which held me so tightly shackled and from my slavery to the things of this world. In book 8, Augustine tells us how one day a business associate, a man named Paticianus, came to his house and finding a book of Paul's letters on Augustine's table, he started to talk with Augustine and his housemate, his friend Olypius, about religious matters. He tells them about the life of St. Anthony. Anthony was a pioneer in the monastic movement uh, who happened to wander into a church one day, heard the gospel read where, the, where Christ admonished the rich young ruler, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. And taking it as a direct message from God to himself, Anthony went and did just that sold all that he had, gave it to the poor, and lived as a hermit in the desert for a couple of decades. And Ponticianus tells about his friends who uh, got separated from him one day, and by the time he finds them again, they've happened upon uh, Athanasius' life of St. Anthony. Athanasius had written The Life of St. Anthony, one of his more popular works. Uh, They not only found it, they read it, And were so moved by it, they decided then and there to sell all that they had and become monks. Augustine writes, But while he was speaking, O Lord, you were turning me around to look at myself. For I had placed myself behind my own back, refusing to see myself. You were setting me before my own eyes so that I could see how sordid I was. How deformed and squalid, how tainted with ulcers and sores. I saw it all and stood aghast, but there was no place where I could escape from myself. Opontikianus finishes up his business and leaves. Augustine turns to his friend Olypius and says, What is the matter with us? What is the meaning of this story? These men have not had our schooling. Yet they stand up and storm the gates of heaven, while we, for all our learning, lie here groveling in this world of flesh and blood. He bolts from the house and runs into the garden, Olypius trailing behind him. He writes, we sat down as far as possible from the house. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting your will and entering into your covenant. Yet in my bones I knew that was what I ought to do. In my heart of hearts I praised it to the skies. And to reach this goal I needed no chariot or ship. I need not even walk as far as I had come from the house to the place where we sat. For to make the journey... And to arrive safely, no more was required than an act of will. He says, I tore my hair 
and hammered my forehead with my fist. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees, and I did all this because I made an act of will to do it. In my heart, I kept saying, let it be now, let it be now. And merely by saying this, I was on the point of making the resolution. Augustine continues, he says, I stood up, left Olypius, so that I might weep and cry to my heart's content, for it occurred to me that tears were best shed in solitude. I moved away far enough to avoid being embarrassed, even by his presence, Somehow I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears which now stream from my eyes, the sacrifice that is acceptable to you. For I felt that I was still the captive of my sins, and in my misery I kept crying, How long shall I go on saying, Tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? I was asking myself these questions, weeping all the while with the most bitter sorrow in my heart, when all at once I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say, but again and again it repeated the refrain, take it and read, take it and read. At this I looked up, thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant words like these, but I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of Scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. So I hurried back to the place where Olypius was, sitting For when I stood up to move away, I had put down the book containing Paul's epistles. I seized it and opened it, and in silence I read Romans chapter 13, verses 13 through 14. Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries. Rather, arm yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. I had no no wish to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant, I came to the end of the sentence. It was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. God used that verse in that moment to awaken Augustine's conscience and to bring him to saving faith. He shows the book to Olypius. And Olypius reads on in Romans chapter 14. Find room among you for a man of an over-delicate conscience. And Olypius takes that as a word from God meant directly for him. And together, Augustine and his friend are converted. He says, we went and told my mother who was overjoyed. For she saw that you had granted far more than she asked than she used to ask in her tearful prayers and plaintive lamentations. Well, Augustine decided to finish out his semester of teaching and afterwards to retire. On the Easter vigil in the spring of 387, at the age of 33, Augustine was baptized in the Church of Milan by Ambrose, together with his friend Olypius and his son, Adeodatus, who was 15 at the time. 
His friends, together with Monica, uh, gather together and he writes, We discussed where we could most usefully serve you, and together we set out to Africa. So Augustine and his friends, they're convinced that uh, they're going to go back to Africa, and they're going to live out the rest of their lives as monks, uh, in solitude, studying the scriptures, and uh, communing in fellowship with one another. Augustine says, While we are at Ostia, at the mouth of the Tiber, my mother died. Augustine describes the days leading up to Monica's death. They talked about heaven and what it must be like. And when Monica fell ill with a fever, it became apparent that her end was near. Her family drew near. She said, you will bury your mother here. I said nothing, trying hard to hold back my tears. But my brother, who Augustine, this is the first time Augustine mentions his brother. Apparently he's been there the whole time. I don't know. His brother's there and said something to the effect that he wished for her sake that she would die in her own country, not abroad. Monica had always often talked about how she wished to be buried next to her husband, Patricius, in Tagaste. When she heard this, she looked at him anxiously, and her eyes reproached him for his worldly thoughts. She turned to me and said, see how he talks. And then speaking to both of us, she went on, It does not matter where you bury my body. Do not let that worry you. Nothing is far from God. She replied, And I need have no fear that he will not know where to find me when he comes to raise me to life at the end of the world. Monica was 56 years old when she died. Well, at first... Augustine fought back the tears for the sake of those around, fearing that any display of emotion was unbecoming of a mature man. Uh, Unbridled grief like that of her grandson, Adeodatus, who was just beside himself, uh, began to wail aloud and only ceased his cries when we all checked him. That only belonged to boys, not mature men. Even at the graveside, As they're burying the body of his mother, Augustine remains stoic. He says, I went and returned without a tear. But after a night of sleep, when the reality of his mother's passing finally hit home, he writes, the tears which I had been holding back streamed down, and I let them flow as freely as they would, making of them a pillow for my heart. On them it rested, for my weeping sounded in your ears alone, not in the ears of men who may have misconstrued it and despised it. And now, O Lord, I make you my confession in this book. Let any man read it who will. Let him understand it as he will. And if he finds that I have sinned by weeping for my mother, even if only for a fraction of an hour, let him not mock at me. For this was the mother now dead and hidden a while from my sight, who had wept over me for many years, so that I might live in your sight. Let him not mock at me, but weep himself, if his charity is great. Let him weep for my sins to you, the father of all the brothers of of your Christ. Well, Augustine returns to Africa, 
Uh, He's determined to live out the rest of his life with his friends as a monk, pursuing the uh, uh, truth through a contemplative life. But as we will see in the months to come, God will have other plans for Augustine. So, because I took up all that time with the Manichaean nonsense, um, we'll just pass over the Q&A this evening, um, and we'll just go ahead and close with with, uh, our hymn. If that's all right. What was that? I had many questions. Well, you're free to come ask me afterwards. I I just don't want to hold everybody up. Um, We're going to be singing from the insert that uh, was in this morning's bulletin, O Church Arise. So if you could could find that and uh, stand with us. Thank you.